Hi everyone, my name is Norton and this is uh, part 2B in this series called We Believe. This is one of those supplemental podcasts that we do from time to time. So if you've been listening along with us in this series, in the last message, part 2, um, Emily Schultz, one of the pastors here at New Denver, uh, began to talk about some of the big picture um, really cool things about the Apostles' Creed. We're, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed in this series and why, uh, partly why it's our statement of faith at New Denver Church, um, why we think it's so important, and then why we even say this creed out loud. We're, we're not a super liturgical church, but we do some liturgical elements in our services that we think are really helpful and beneficial. And one of those is we say the Apostles' Creed uh, regularly. So, um, as I said, in the last message, part two, um, we took a look at the Apostles' Creed almost like a painting. Emily gave this picture that, that the creed is like this beautiful piece of art, and uh, there's a lot of different ways you can appreciate it, and one of the most important things to do is just step back and look at it, and she talked through a few key features if you are stepping back and just sort of taking the whole piece of artwork in. Um, and, and how beautiful some of these key features of the Apostles' Creed are. Uh, and it's kind of like an Impressionist painting. Um, if you ever remember the first time you saw an Impressionist painting like Monet or Manet or, or one of those French Impressionists, you, you remember if you look at it from a distance, it just has this beauty to it, um, this movement to it, uh, the, the colors and, and the forms and the composition and and there's just something about it that the Impressionist works, good Impressionist works that are so beautiful. Um, but then today in this uh, supplemental podcast, we're going to step closer. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's kind of like Impressionist works. When you get close to them, you see, oh, wow, there's something about the brush strokes. Uh, there's something about the way the paint is put on the canvas that, that you don't see when you're standing far back. You see a different kind of beauty staying far back, but when you get close, um, there's some really beautiful uh, uh, elements in the details. And so um, that's what I want to do today. I want to walk through the very details, line by line, of the Apostles' Creed. And, and if you say the Creed regularly in church, or if you sort of read it regularly, it's easy for it to become familiar and to just skip over those details, or to just sort of cite those details, or, or say those words uh, sort of rotely, um, and, and to and to miss some of the beautiful elements of each phrase and each uh, each word. And so, I want to. I can't pull out all of the elements in a short podcast, but I want to pull out a few of those elements today. Um, and then, and then it's also important to sort of go through this line by line in this way, because there are a few lines in the creed that I think are the, the common places that some of us get tripped up. There's a few specific uh, phrases or statements that are challenging, uh, maybe hard to understand, maybe difficult to believe or to agree with, and so, and so we'll spend a little bit of extra time on those as well. Uh, one resource I do want to mention before I do this, um, it's a book that I'm leaning into. I've, I've got a bunch of books about the Apostles' Creed here that I've read or sort of consulted, but there's one I like. Um, it's called The Apostles' Creed for Today. It's written by Justo Gonzalez, um, and, and I'm not going to cite him every time I sort of pull an idea or a quote or something from him. I, I just, I'm just kind of mentioning him at the beginning to let you know that a lot of the ideas um, I'm going to mention today uh, come from his book, um, I, I think his book is important. It's not a long book. It's, it's uh, 99 pages, so less than 100 pages. His book is important for two reasons. Um, number one, he's a historian, first and foremost. So he just walks through the Apostles' Creed line by line, and he engages the creed in the context in which it was originally written and it comes out of. So as a historian, he sort of brings out some historical components that I think are really helpful. And then the second thing about him is he's Latino. He's a Cuban-American. And so, um, so many books that we read about the Bible or theology today in, in America are written by, um, you know, written from white uh, or Eurocentric perspectives, which are not wrong. Uh, they're just limited. And so it's always good to consult um, historians and theologians and biblical scholars that come from 
uh, different perspectives than just uh, white traditional male perspectives. And and so Justo Gonzalez provides that. And um, so I just I recommend it. if you're someone who likes to dig in more to the history, uh, you might pick up his book. So, all right. With all that said, let's let's jump in. Um, here's how the creed begins. It says I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. So so this is the first section of the creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, or maker of heaven and earth. It was originally translated from Latin and Greek, and so every now and then you'll see slightly different translations, but some version of that wording is really the first paragraph, if you will, of the creed. And uh, as Emily pointed out in the last message, there's three primary sections of the creed. So this first section is about God the Father. And just pausing for a second to think about those words, God the Father is a radical idea in a couple of very unique ways. Uh, For starters, to just declare that we believe in God as a Father, that He is our Father, that He is like um, a a parent to us, um, is really significant. Uh, Think about it. Jesus taught us to address God in this way whenever we talk to God. He said, whenever you pray, this was one question his disciples asked him, how should we pray? He said, whenever you pray, here's how you pray. You start this way, our Father. So so this is a, a primary image or metaphor or way of us understanding and knowing and relating to God as a Father. And of course, he's not just any father, he's a loving father, right? Jesus uh, had all kinds of teachings about this. The most famous is the prodigal son, where he describes his father who lost a son, his son runs away, and when his son comes back, the father welcomes him lavishly and forgives him and loves him unconditionally, even though the the son sort of screwed everything up. And so, so we see that Jesus is trying to teach us that God is this loving father, uh, there's even some motherly images that the Bible uses. So it's not, this isn't just a masculine thing, as if God is just like a father, but not like a mother. It, it, it's really a more general sense of God as a parent, right? Um, and so e- even Jesus one time talks about um, uh, God or even himself when he, he's looking at Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem and he sees all of these people. Um, who are, who are really living life and, and, and following God in, in ways that are not helpful, and, and God is seeing this, and Israel is having challenges. And, and Jesus said, were, were God or were I like a hen where I could gather you as chicks under my wings to protect you? It's like judgment is coming to Israel, and there's this whole long context there, but he uses this very motherly image of of God being like a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wings to protect them and to to keep them safe from from what's about to to come to them. And, And again, we see this idea of a loving parent, and then of course... God and, or Jesus and, and Paul affirm several times that we can address God as Abba, which is this Aramaic word that means father or, or maybe even a little more informally dad or daddy. Like it's, he, is, he is that intimate with us that we can relate to him as a father. And so when we start the very first few words of the creed, we're saying we believe that God is the kind of God that Jesus taught us he is, that he is a loving father. And, of course, this might be challenging, uh, right, for some of us, if you grew up with a father who was not that way, or a mother who was not that way, or, or parents who were not that way. Um, and so it's hard for some of us to relate to a parent who, who loves us, who nurtures us, who wants to protect us, who, who lavishes grace on us unconditionally, even when we screw up, right? Um, but the point is not that God is like our earthly fathers. If God was like our earthly fathers or earthly mothers or earthly parents, then we would all have woefully inadequate ideas about what God is like. It's actually the reverse. It's, it's that God is the model 
is the example, is the prime model of what a loving father or loving mother should be like. And it's it's the example that that all earthly parents fall short of. And, and when we fall short of that as parents, or when we see that example as falling short as kids or as children, or we see our parents that way, when we say this creed, when we remember that God is this way and he is the model, we can trust and hope in one who does live out that love unconditionally. So God is a father. We start there. And then there's this other angle to this idea of God being a father. And this is more historical. Uh, When the creed was first written and developed in the first and second and third centuries, um, Christianity was, was growing in this Roman empire culture. And in Roman culture, uh, the father was always the head of the house. There was this strong idea of a father, not a mother. I mean, it was a patriarchal society where the father was the head of the household. And the father was was actually not really thought of as loving or nurturing in the way that we long for that today. But in those days, the father was the ruling head of the household, the protecting head of the household. Um, the father was the one you obeyed. The father was the one who could be difficult, who could be hard, who could tell you when you could collect your inheritance or could keep your inheritance from you. The father was the one who was over the extended family. And by the way, extended family included slaves, household servants. And when the father ordered you to do something, you did it because you were underneath him. You submitted to him. He had power and authority over you. And even though in some ways we can see all kinds of potential for abuse here, and we know that that even happened in Roman society, right? There were a lot of bad fathers who used that authority or used that lording over their families in very bad ways. The larger idea was... Not only that God is this loving father, the way Jesus described the father welcoming the prodigal son home, but God was a ruling father. God was someone who was in charge. God was someone you could count on to take care of everyone and to steer the family in the right direction. And God was someone you did submit to. And this idea of God as this kind of father, it's confirmed in the phrase, Right after this, right? We believe in God, the Father Almighty. (laughs) And in in Greek, um, this word is pantokrator. Pantokrator. And uh, there's actually a couple of different Greek words happening here. You can hear in the very beginning the word pan um, or pan, right? In, In sort of American English, which means all. And then in the second part of that word, krator, the basis of that word in Greek is krasis or krasis, which means government or rule. It's where we get our words democracy, right? Krasi refers to the type of government of the people, democracy or autocracy or theocracy. So krasi or krasis in this ancient Greek means uh, the type of government or rule. So pantokrator is this word in the creed, which means all ruling or all powerful ruler. We translate it now in English, almighty. So that's the phrase we have in the creed as we say it. We believe in God, the father almighty, but it it might be more better for us to think about it in these words. We believe in God, the father, the all powerful ruler. Now, uh, later, when the creed is, is translated into Latin, the Latin word is omnipotence. Omni is all, so it's sort of translating that same idea from Greek, and potence means power, so all-powerful. And it's where we all, actually, you hear the word right in there, the English word omnipotence. And later, in the Middle Ages and in more modern philosophical discussions about what God is like, there, there come up all of these discussions and debates about what it means for God to be omnipotent, for God to be all-powerful. And oftentimes, these debates sort of steer in a 
in a very abstract and philosophical and rational kind of territory, right? Well, if he's omnipotent, is he is is God so strong and powerful that he could make a rock that he cannot lift, right? Well, if he can make a rock that he cannot lift, well, then he can't lift it. There's something he can't do. If he can't make a rock he cannot lift, then there's something he can't do. So, so you can see there's all these philosophical conundrums that, that theologians in the, the Middle Ages and medieval times and Enlightenment and modern times uh, have sort of wrestled with these very deep philosophical discussions about what it means for God to be omnipotent and all-powerful. And of course, at some level, those discussions and debates can be interesting. They can be helpful. They can help clarify some things about what we believe about God. But if we're honest, in some ways, those debates can take us down rabbit trails that, that really miss the mark on, on how the Bible describes God and how the ancient people and the ancient creeds talk about God. When they say that God is all-powerful, they're not talking about in this sort of abstract, philosophical, let's come up with crazy examples of what it might mean in this abstract way for God to be all-powerful. No, they are saying in the most tangible and rooted and earthy way, God is the sovereign ruler over creation. He is a king over a kingdom that we live in. He is at work in our lives and in our world, extending his rule into our world and inviting us to participate into that rule. This is what it means for him to be this father, almighty, all-powerful ruler. And that's clarified in the very next line. He is the creator or maker of heaven and earth. He is ruler over all that he has created, over all that exists. And there's this great hymn. It's an old hymn, old to us at least. It's about 100 years old. Uh, Not nearly as old as the creed, right? But there's this great hymn, and we sing it at our church sometimes, This is my Father's World. And it captures this, this, this first part of the creed so well. And you might remember the last verse, there's this, this is my father's world, and it talks about creation and all these things over which, all these aspects of creation over which God is ruler over. And then the last verse says, this is my father's world, oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This captures this idea of what it means to believe in a father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. So next time you say the creed, before you fly through these two short lines at the very beginning about God the Father. It's the shortest section of the whole creed. It's easy to just say them and fly through them. Before you do that, think deeply on what we're affirming. Yes, there's injustice and violence in this world, and though the wrong seems also strong, we still affirm God is the ruler. We still affirm God is this loving parent, this loving father, loving in a way that all human parents aspire to be, and yet we all fall woefully short of, and that he is in charge, and that he does rule, and that he does care for his creation, and he longs for his creation to reach its full potential just like a parent, just like all fathers and mothers long for their sons and daughters to reach their full potential. And even when they don't, and even when there's struggle, and even when there's obstacles, and even in our world when there's evil and violence and injustice, and so much that is wrong, God is still at work, and he still rules, and he's still bringing his creation under his governance and his rule until it will eventually be affirmed over all things. That's what we begin to affirm when we say, the Apostles' Creed. All right, 
The next section is the longest section, as we mentioned in the last message, and it's about Jesus, and it goes like this. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Let's stop right there. We believe in Jesus Christ. Let's not forget, it's easy to think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, but Christ is just the Greek word, it's Christos, it's just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. We're saying we believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God sent to deliver his people, the one whom was sent for Israel, the one whom was sent to do what Israel could not do, which was to be a light to the world and bring God's salvation into all of the world. We believe in this Jesus who is sent in history to be this Savior and this Deliverer. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. He's God's only Son, and He is our Lord. And this, this word Lord, I mean, we use it so casually now. It's just so common in all of our language about Jesus, and we forget how revolutionary this word was. Uh, near the end of the first century A.D., as, um, as there's maybe just a handful of the original disciples or, or apostles or followers of Jesus left, and they're passing on the faith to the next generations, uh, a Roman emperor came to power named Domitian. He ruled from 81 to 96 A.D. We think the apostle John was the last apostle who died probably right at the very end of Domitian's reign and probably wrote his gospels and his letters and then the book of Revelation at the very end of Domitian's reign. And you can see so much in the book of Revelation when you read it because what happens during Domitian's reign is Domitian begins to flex his muscles as a Roman emperor and he requires all Romans to bow to him, to burn incense to him and declare that he as emperor is the Lord. He uses that exact Greek term. He is the Lord, that he is the divine representation of the Roman and Greek gods and that all people in the Roman empire should give him their total allegiance. And so when people are required to do this, They had to actually do that. They would burn incense to him as if he was this God, and they would bow their knee and declare, Caesar is Lord. Now, whether Romans actually meant this in their hearts or not is not that important. I'm sure lots of them did the ritual and said he was the Lord and maybe didn't care so much about it, but it was formative in their lives and in their culture and in the empire. Right? Their allegiance, they will always be reminded, had to be ultimately to Caesar. And we have you know, rituals that we kind of do this as well, and, and we have our own sort of patriotic rituals, right? We pledge allegiance to the flag, sometimes as school kids. We, whenever we fly the flag, we're saying we have some allegiance to this country or to the ideals of this country. Whenever we sing the national anthem, right? Whenever we put our, take our hats off and put our, and part of that is just respect, but part of it is sort of this, this pledging of our allegiance to the values of our nation. And, and every time we do that, it's, these rituals are forming us into people. And we're basically saying, we believe in this country. We believe in our nation's values. We believe keeping its laws are good. We believe in giving our, our money to pay taxes. And, and we believe, some of us, ultimate sacrifice, giving our lives, right? The, the sacrifice of, of defending our country and going to war for our country. And every time we vote, we're saying we believe in, in the values of this. And so it's sort of like we're declaring our allegiance. And yet, for those first followers of Jesus, the way they were declaring their allegiance was they were having to declare it to this Lord, Caesar. And you had to get in line and you had to do it and you had to conform. And, and just like today, if you do something that seems unpatriotic, that seems like you're not declaring your allegiance to all of these values, uh, that causes significant problems. And during Domitian's reign, there was widespread persecution of early Christians because they came to this place where they had to say, I do not believe 
Caesar is Lord. I believe Jesus is Lord. I give my allegiance not to Caesar, but to Jesus. And so every single time, as time went on in the Roman Empire, they said this creed, it was a reminder. We give our allegiance to no one else. There's nothing else in our lives that serves as Lord or King over us. We submit only to Jesus as our Lord. And of course, we don't have emperors anymore that do that, and and we don't have presidents, <laughs> not usually at least, that, that require that kind of allegiance or, or our, our lives aren't on the line in those kinds of ways. And yet, what would it look like every day for us to remember we have no king, we have no Lord, we have no one that we give our worship or our ultimate allegiance to, whether it's our job or our boss or our supervisor or even our earthly parents. I mean, of course, we give some allegiance to these things. We have to and we live in those and there's systems of authority and all of those are good. And yet we give ultimate allegiance to only one Lord, to only one King, right? And that's Jesus. And we say that in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Creed goes on. And the next lines begin to describe who Jesus is. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, um, let's stop there. This, this can be a place, I think, where a lot of people stumble. It's a place where some followers of Jesus say, uh, I'm not sure I fully buy this part of the story. <laughs> right? The whole virgin birth thing. Or maybe some believers say, um, I, I mean, I kind of buy it, I kind of believe in it, but I'm not sure it's that important. I mean, should this have really made it in the creed? Is this one of those essentials to believe? I mean, do we have to believe in the virgin birth? And if I don't believe in the virgin birth, am I a heretic? Uh, well, the short answer to that question is no. No, you're not a heretic. Um, as we said in part one of this series, um, the creed is less, the Apostles' Creed is less about what you personally believe. It's more about the community of faith that you're a part of and the beliefs that shape and give identity to that community of faith. So if you struggle with this one line, then you're you're not a heretic. Don't worry. (laughs) But if we're talking about these lines specifically, or I guess it's not one, it's two lines, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, And we boil them down to this question, do I believe in the virgin birth? That's what this is asking me. That's what this is requiring of me. If that's what we think these lines are about, I think we're missing something. Uh, Conceived of the Holy Spirit, it's not so much about a biological miracle. In in other words, uh, the traditional way to think about Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus' conception, right, this, this miraculous conception, um, is that Mary, right, got pregnant uh, before she had had sexual intercourse with her soon-to-be husband, Joseph. So she was a virgin. She hadn't had sexual intercourse with anyone, certainly not with Joseph. And of course, now we we know medically and biologically that life is conceived with an egg and with a sperm. You need both, right? And and Mary contributed the egg, and so she's the mother. But but there, you know, in this sort of biblical way of, of thinking about it, there was no earthly father. Uh, there was no intercourse. There was there was no conception the way we think of it. And so the Holy Spirit is like the Father. Somehow the Holy Spirit made this con- miraculous conception happen. Somehow the Holy Spirit fertilized the egg, right? And while that's one way to to think about this, um, and it raises all sorts of interesting theological questions that you then begin to go down the road and think, like, well, did, did Mary always stay a virgin? And there were some later in medieval times that says, well, yeah, to, for her to stay pure, right? We, we need to have this sort of pure conception of who Mary is, we believe that she never consummated the marriage. So Jesus didn't really have any brothers or sisters. And and then there's all these discussions that later show up about sin and, 
and and we have a all humans have a sinful nature and where do they get that sinful nature and there's ideas that it's biologically passed on from parents to a child and then it's like well maybe it wasn't maybe Jesus didn't have the sinful nature maybe that's why he was sinless maybe it's because somehow the sinful nature wasn't passed on to him and and since he didn't have a human father is that means sin is passed through human fathers but not through mothers and that seems kind of odd, but maybe that's a way of solving the issue. And and yet it seems odd. And so some people said, well, no, no, no. Human sin is passed through both the father and mother. Well, well, he still had the mother, you know, the human biological mother of Mary. So, so maybe the best way to conceive of this is to think that Mary was sinless too. And so she didn't actually have sin. And so that became this idea that came up in the church. And and then there's actually this idea called the Immaculate Conception, which some people think is about Jesus, but it's actually not. Immaculate Conception, if you grew up uh, Roman Catholic or you heard that term, that actually refers to Mary's conception, that God somehow cons- helped Mary be born as somebody who did not sin, so she couldn't pass on that sin to Jesus. And and so so you see all of the like, Again, rabbit trails you begin to go down when you start talking about all these biological things going on with, with the conception of Jesus. And, and while some of that's interesting, uh, it, it's not the earliest, the way the earliest Christians understood Jesus' conception. It's not what they meant when they said, We believe in Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. When they said the creed, they were not thinking in those biological terms that we often immediately go to today. Because uh, for starters, they didn't really have that biological understanding back then. It, It was deeply complex the way they thought about conception and sex and and they knew they, i mean they understood sperm um they didn't fully understand the fertilization of an egg they sort of thought in the ancient world for the most part that the sperm was all that was needed and the sperm just sort of grew in a woman's body that was her womb her womb was like the the fertile soil for the sperm to grow um so, so they so they had a, a very different or limited medical understanding and so they weren't bringing all these biological ideas to this issue the way we do for for them the conception of Jesus being being miraculous was something that God had actually done in the past there were all sorts of stories of God intervening in the lives of of women or in couples who couldn't have children because they were infertile or barren as the old testament or the bible often describes them but god had something unique he wanted to do and so he did something miraculous to enable them to have a child and you see this story happen over and over and over i mean the most famous is abraham and sarah they're old they're infertile they can't have children but god has this promise that he's going to create a nation from them and he does something miraculous They cannot have children. It seems impossible, medically speaking, but God enables them to have Isaac. You see this with Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. Same thing. She's barren, but God does something so that they can have Jacob. And then Jacob and Rachel cannot have children, and they're barren, but God does something. And God is doing all of this to keep this line going, to create this nation of Israel. Later, Ruth is barren she's infertile she can't have kids she tries for many years with her husband and then her husband dies and you read the story of ruth and at the end of that story she marries boaz and it literally says in this story that god enabled her to have a child and that child would be of the line of david we get the king david from ruth's lineage god is doing something special and then and then hannah is barren as well and god steps in so there's all of these stories and in all of them god does something miraculous to enable women or enable couples who are infertile to conceive and the children they conceived all play some significant role these are special births that god is overseeing and making happen 
And so when we see the lines, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we could just read it this way. Who was conceived in this special way because God was doing something extraordinary. God allowed this birth to happen as he had in past. And then it says, she was he was born, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And, and I think we get hung up on the word virgin here as if that's what this is all about. This is about the virgin birth. When that's not really the thrust of this line. It's, it's really more, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary. Which Mary? Oh, oh the one who was a virgin. <laughs> the one who couldn't have had a child naturally. Just like Sarah couldn't have had a child. Just like Ruth couldn't have had a child. Just like Hannah couldn't have a child. But God stepped in and God did, because she couldn't have a child because they weren't married yet and she hadn't had intercourse with Joseph. And so it it seemed naturally impossible, just like it seemed naturally impossible with Sarah and Hannah and others. But, But God stepped in and God did something miraculous. But the focus is not on her virginity or her being a virgin. It's on Jesus was born of this woman named Mary. Which is to say, Jesus was born. He was a human. He entered this world just like all of us, in the most messy and vulnerable and earthy and real and bloody and innocent and crying and pooping and needing love and needing attention and needing care from a mother and a father, right? He, he entered this world as in the most human of ways, just like every single one of us do, which is to say, as we get to this part of the creed, we are not talking about Jesus being a theoretical God, who is up there, a spiritual God, a disembodied God, a distant God, a God that remains spirit or light or some sort of immaterial essence or just the, you know, capital U universe out there. We are saying that God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, actually came down and became a human. And he was born. He was born in the same way. Every single one of us has been born. Every single human who has ever lived has been born. He could not be more like us. And so on one hand, these two lines are declaring, they're holding two things in tension. On one hand, yes, his birth was miraculous. Right? God did something miraculous. Anyone who just says, no, Jesus was just ordinary, normal person. No, 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 no. God was up to something big. And his birth was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It was made possible only by the extraordinary intervention of God. And on the other hand, <laughs> he was a baby boy born just like you and me. And it was as messy and ordinary and common and human as it could ever be. This is a God who knows what it's like to be just like all of us. And so the next time you say this part of the creed, is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, what you're saying is that we believe in, in a Jesus who is God and Lord and Messiah And he was miraculously conceived to come and be that God and Lord and Messiah. And he was a baby born of a mother. And he was just as human as we are. And he needed milk and he needed his diapers changed. And he probably cried a lot. And his birth was perhaps painful. And there might have been complications. And he was helpless and he had birthmarks. And and, and of course, then he grew up to be a child who had trouble, you know, obeying his mom. And then he was an adolescent and he had tendencies to, to, you know, do all sorts of things that adolescents do. And then he was a teenager and he was a young adult. And he experienced humanity in all its messiness in every single way that we have. He was born of a woman named Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. Here, we're assured 
that Jesus was real. You want to know when this happened? Uh, Here's the date. (laughs) He was born on this day or he lived in this time period. Now, back then they didn't have dates. They didn't have a calendar that everyone agreed on the way we have calendars today. So when they wanted to date something, they would say it happened during so-and-so's reign. Read through the whole Old Testament. (laughs) All the dates happen this way. Every single time a historian in the Old Testament wants to tell us when something happened, they would tell us, It happened under this king's reign or during the time that this leader reigned. And so basically this is just saying, hey, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, this this Roman governor. If you want to know when all this happened, you just go back and this is when it happened. And, And we know from other historical documents, not biblical documents, who this guy named Pontius Pilate was and when he reigned and what he was doing. And he was this governor and the uh, for the Roman Empire in the in the area of Palestine. This is simply saying this is when it all happened. And the most important thing that happened, and I won't go into the details because we've talked about that in so many other settings, is Jesus died. He was crucified. This is shorthand, and and there would have been explanations of of why he was crucified and how he was crucified, and the gospel accounts were always circulated to explain all that. But just, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And then there's this really interesting phrase. He descended to the dead. And it's interesting on a number of levels, and so let me just clarify a few things, and this might be one of the most confusing phrases in the creed. Um, First, let me clarify one thing. It's actually found, um, it's not actually found in the oldest version of the Apostles' Creed. The oldest version of the Apostles' Creed, as I described in the podcast, is called the Old Roman Creed. It was the first sort of uh, creed that was began to use be used in in the in the city of Rome um, during baptism ceremonies, um, and so this phrase uh, he descended to the dead we we find it later in about the three hundreds that's where it it becomes sort of enters the Apostles Creed and is used. Um, so apparently it becomes important quickly and it's it's part of the creed early on, but it's not in the very first version. Now there's also a question about how this phrase should be translated. Um, As I said, the oldest versions of the Creed were written in Greek and Latin. Um, And so what we say is a translation in English. And sometimes, you might have heard this or seen this in some places, it's the word that's translated here is translated as hell. And so sometimes the phrase is, he descended to hell. And uh, in, in medieval times, this whole idea that Jesus descended into hell, um, there's this huge tradition that arose uh, and, and it was this idea that here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross and he was buried, for those days until before he, he rose from the dead, while he was dead, he actually went into this place called hell to rescue those who were there or to at least share the good news with those who were there. And the idea is the people who were there were all the people of, in human history who had died before the time of Jesus. They were sort of trapped in hell and they had no savior. They had no deliverer. And Jesus actually entered into hell um, so he could tell them that he could be their savior and be their deliverer and they would have the opportunity to put their trust in him. And, and of course, hell in the medieval mindset has all these sort of graphic imagery and, and Dante's, Dante's Inferno comes to mind. In fact, the word Inferno is, is the word hell in, in sort of Latin at that time, this, this fiery image of hell, and, and it's this place of, of punishment. And, and so sometimes when the creed is said and, and it has this phrase, he descended into hell, people think that's what it means. They have that picture. And, and all of that is interesting, but that's almost certainly not what the Apostles' Creed meant when it was first circulated. And it's not really how the Bible itself describes Jesus' death. The word uh, used in this phrase, when it says, he descended to the dead, the word for dead there, doesn't mean hell as a place of one's eternal destination. And that's why I don't think the word hell, the English word hell is good to use here. I don't, we don't love the translations that use the word hell. 
because we have that sort of medieval picture of hell, and that's not what the original Greek or Latin words meant here. Um, it, the, the Greek word that's used here is the word Hades. So you've probably heard that, and sometimes that's used interchangeably with hell, and so that makes everything confusing as well. But that's not what it meant in sort of the Greek world. The Greek word Hades, or there's another Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament, the word Sheol. And both of these words, the Greek word Hades and the Hebrew word Sheol, for the most part, just mean the grave. It's the place where your body is buried. It's the place where your body and your soul go when you die. It's just the place of the dead. It's when people are buried underground, right? It's often referred to as descending to this place, as, as the underworld. And the underworld or, the, or Hades or this, this place of the dead was not a place of punishment. It was not a place of judgment. It was not a, an eternal destiny. It was quite literally just a place, not a geographical place, but a, the state of death. Now, Jesus and other Christians had a different word for the idea of hell. It was the word Gehenna, and that's a whole other topic I can't go into, but but that did mean something like your eternal destiny or state, but that's not the idea here in the Apostles' Creed. The idea is that Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried, and he really was dead. He went to the place of death. It's not that Jesus just stopped breathing for a few minutes to trick everyone. It's not that his heart just stopped beating for a few moments and then somehow God, like, you know, shocked him back to life. It wasn't that he was just asleep. It wasn't that Jesus was just passed out. It wasn't that Jesus was just unconscious or he was pretending to be dead. No. He was crucified, he died, he was buried, he descended to the fullness of death. Which again is the human experience, right? I mean, the most human things about all of us is the way we come into this world and the way we leave it. It's our birth and our death. It's the moment we enter life in this world and it's the moment we lose our life which if you really think about it are the two most vulnerable moments of our lives when we're born and when we die and the creed is affirming what the bible teaches that jesus the god of the universe experienced the two most vulnerable most human moments that every single one of us experience to be born and to breathe one's last breath. And in some ways, this little statement, he descended to the dead, you could say it's like the climax of the creed. And, and maybe climax is the, the wrong way to put it. Maybe, maybe it's the lowest point of the creed. Maybe it's like the canyon, the, de, the, the descending down, that, that Jesus comes down to be a human. And Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. A lot of this imagery comes straight from what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, that Jesus comes down to be a servant, and he gives his life, and he submits to us, and, and he ultimately submits his life to, to, to the violence of humanity, to experience the, the fullness of, of human sin and pain and suffering. And he experiences the fullness of everything that we experience, the frailty and the limitations of human life, the violence of the human experience, the consequences of human evil and sin. He descended to the dead. He experiences the fullness of death. Which, of course, leads to the next statement that follows immediately. On the third day, he rose again. He experiences the fullness of death. He really died. It seemed irreversible. It seemed permanent. It seemed eternal. It seemed that death had had the final say. 
And in every way it had. And yet it hadn't. On the third day, he rose again. And everything about who Jesus is and why he came is wrapped up in these two statements. It is us as followers of Jesus affirming his death and resurrection. There's so much more about Jesus that is important and we dare not neglect everything else about his teaching and his life and his example and all of those other things. But without his death and resurrection, he is not Jesus. He is not the Messiah. He is not who we follow. He is not the center and the pioneer and the author of all of our faith. Our existence as followers of Jesus is nothing without his death and resurrection. Paul says, I preach Christ crucified, and that's it. Everything else is wrapped up in Christ crucified. And then on another occasion, he says, and then he rose from the grave. And without the resurrection, everything that we believe is useless. We of all people, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we of all people should be pitied. We're believing in vain. We're believing in nothing. Our faith is useless. Without the cross, and the resurrection. These two things hold everything else together. The creed goes on. It says he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, which helps us remember that his purpose on earth as a human living among us was complete when he gave his life on the cross and when he rose from the grave. In fact, Jesus even says that right before he goes to the cross. He says, my work, basically, Father, is coming to its final completion. I have come to do and I have done everything that you have asked me. And so after that, as the Gospels tell and as the book of Acts tells and as Paul explains later, he ascends into heaven and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work on earth is done, but his work is not done. His plans, his kingdom, his rule is not complete. He invites us to participate with him, and he gives us his power. He goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, which is like a place of power. When you sit at the right hand of the God of the universe, this is shorthand in that uh, context. The person who sat at your right was, was your greatest warrior, was, was the person of power. And so he's, he's sitting in a place of power. And then do you remember what he says to his, his followers just before he goes and ascends? It says that all power has been given to me, all authority has been given to me, and now I go with you as you go and you witness to all of that in all of the world. So he ascends into heaven. He leaves us, but he leaves us with his power. And we always remember he is still seated at the right hand of the Father. He still has that power that he is giving us. And then, of course, the section closes by saying he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will return one day. And all of Jesus' teaching, there's lots of parables and stories about this. He makes it very clear, I'm not going to give you details. I'm not going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like. And so quit making predictions. <laughs> quit writing bad Christian fiction and scaring everybody, right? Quit, like, quit trying to read the signs and... Quit taking all of these symbols that meant so much to people in the first century and thinking that they're helicopters and the Russian armies and that like like that, that. I'm gonna come back. I'm not giving you any details. You just need to be ready. You need to live as if every moment I will come back. You need to be a part of everything I am doing here to begin to live out my purposes and my kingdom and trust. In the darkest moments, in the hardest times, don't worry, I will come back. And I'll come back to judge everything, the living and the dead. And while this word judge sounds like a scary term to us, when we think of judge, like we just we think of judgment and condemnation, and we, we go to those places so quickly, it doesn't need to mean that at all. This can be a source of hope. It means he will come. 
and he will make all things right, all injustice in our world. Think of racism, think of violence, think of the people living in poverty that don't be deserved to be living in poverty. Like He will come and make all things right. Don't we long for that? It means he will come and he will reveal all that is good and true. Paul talks about all of the things that we've done in life. God will come back and when, and when Jesus comes back, he will reveal everything we've done in our life and we'll begin to see all the things that we, done, we did that had eternal value and all the things that we did that didn't really have as much value as we thought they did. And I guess you could say there's some fear in that. Paul talks about that, that that we have works and some are made of straw and some will endure. And that should give us this, this motivation to be sure that everything we're doing in this life does have eternal value and is, is building his kingdom and is, is a part of his bigger purposes, right? And, and when he comes back, he will reveal all of that. And it also means that when he comes back, he'll make all things new. In Revelation, he says that, Behold, I am the one who comes to make all things new. Don't we want that? Don't we come, want him to come and make all things new? Don't we long for that? When we say the creed, we affirm our belief and our desire for that. All right, there's one more section. Let's take a look at this real quick and then we'll wrap up. The creed wraps up by saying we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. Let's stop there because this is so rich. This section is, is, is sort of about the Holy Spirit, but we quickly get into some terms and phrases that don't seem like they're the Holy Spirit. So I'll come back to that in just a second. But it says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Holy means made whole, made new. Remember, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has happened. New creation is happening. The word holy also means made separate. When you're made holy, you are called to be unique and you are called to be different. You are called to be a light in a dark world. You are called to embody and witness to something great. You are called to bear his kingdom and his light in our world. That's what it means to be holy. We're a holy Catholic church. And as Emily mentioned in the last message, this can trip us up sometimes because we sort of associate the word Catholic with with Roman Catholic, the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. And and, uh, that's not what it means here. Um, The word Catholic in the first few centuries, there wasn't really an institution like there is now. Uh, There wasn't a hierarchy. There weren't popes and bishops and there wasn't any of that in the first few centuries um the word catholic was little c it just meant um it was just an adjective and uh the easiest word to use here would be universal the universal church the global church that's what catholic means um it's a a, a greek word the greek word uh it's two words kata and halas that's sort of catholic kata halas Kata means according, and holus or holus means whole. So Catholic means according to the whole, according to the, to the whole thing, <laughs> which means his church is a universal whole body. And wherever it exists in one place, wherever there's a a group, a, a body of believers in one place, they are pointing to something much bigger. They are a part of something much bigger. And the whole is made up of all of these diverse people all around the world that bring different cultures and different languages and different ways of worshiping God and different gifts and and, and all sorts of things. This, This global community that together is his body and his light in the world And that all of our little local expressions point to. That's the holy Catholic church that we believe in. The communion of saints. That we are a part of something. This communion or this fellowship with with the saints who have gone before. And saints, again, not capital S here, like St. Francis and St. Peter and that. No, no, no. We are all saints. The word saint means holy one. One who has been saved by God one who has been redeemed by God, one who has 
part of the family of God, one who is living out who God made him or her to be, right? And and this whole part about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, it's part of the Holy Spirit section because it's the Holy Spirit that binds us all together. When Jesus left, he said he would send his spirit. He would leave, but his spirit would come and his spirit would actually do greater things than he did, right? Which is amazing to think. His spirit would come and and do something that that would be important. It's important for the spirit to come and do this. He's got to leave so that the spirit can come do this. And, And the spirit comes to empower us, to unify us, to nurture our gifts, to use those gifts for the kingdom, to help us become his holy ones. This is why the spirit is called the Holy Spirit, because the spirit is is unique and and it helps us in this process of of transformation in our lives and this pro- here's a here's a big word for you it helps us in this process of sanctification sanctification the word sanctify just means to become holy it's a really churchy word that just means the process that we go through in our lives where we are slowly more and more becoming people who are filled with God's spirit and live the life that he's called us to live and pursue and experience his healing and his wholeness and his holiness. And then, in fact, the next three phrases of the creed, the last three phrases really of the creed, they unpack what this process is and its ultimate goal. It says, the next phrase, uh, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Right? How important is this? That we regularly say, I believe that I have received God's forgiveness and that I embody God's forgiveness. I have received forgiveness for my own sins and I have been made right with God. And then I am one who then figures out how to forgive the sins of one another against me and then figure out how to confess my own sins against one another and to live out forgiveness in horizontal relationships as I experience forgiveness in this vertical relationship. Right? And this, this need and this yearning for forgiveness, is it not at the heart of all of our deepest human needs, right? To receive and experience this deep forgiveness, this healing forgiveness from God and to experience with one another. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, right? What do we say in that? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And Paul says we can forgive others because we have been forgiven. Our forgiveness with God is always linked with our forgiveness of others. And it's hard Right? How many of us have a hard time forgiving ourselves for our deepest faults and our deepest mistakes and regrets? How many of us have a hard time believing that God truly forgives us for those dark things we've done? How many of us have a hard time forgiving other people? How many of us have a hard time asking for forgiveness of others? And how important is it for us to therefore say over and over and over and over, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. As hard as it is, I am believing that that reality is true. And then I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That ultimately, we as people are being transformed and we're made holy and we're embracing God's love and forgiveness. And as we do that and experience that more and more, we experience resurrection and life. And we're reminded that this resurrection that we are experiencing is both spiritual, but ultimately it's physical. It's bodily. That we are embodied people and one day we will literally be made new. That we're not just spiritual beings that we don't die and our spirit leaves our bodies and our bodies are just going to stay in the ground and we float with God in the clouds, right? No, no, no. We are, we are only truly human and we're only truly alive and we're only truly whole as spiritual and bodily physical beings. 
And so every time we say the creed, we're reminded of these truths that we are bodily people. We did a whole series on this called Sacred Soma. You could go back and listen to that. And we talked about it over and over and over that the Bible keeps telling us over and over that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are sacred to God. Our bodies are who we are. And right here in the creed, we are reminded of how important our physical bodies are and that they'll one day be resurrected and that we are moving towards life everlasting. Life that is abundant and eternal and everlasting and that this is sort of the final declaration that death will never have the final word. Just like it didn't have the final word for Jesus, even though he experienced the fullness of death, it did not have the final word and that it will not have the final word for us. That we believe in the greatest hope of all. That there's something beyond death. There's something beyond the sin. There's something beyond the brokenness of this world. That God is moving us towards the people and the reality that he always intended us to be and experience. And then the final word of the creed, amen. Do you know what amen means? It means, may it be so. May these few lines that I just said, my belief in God, my belief in Jesus, my belief in the Spirit, and all of these things, may they be so. May this declaration and this confession be true. May it become a reality. May these words take root in my soul. May these words, even when I have a hard time believing them, help me in my unbelief. May these words take root in my life and in our community as the community of faith. May these words be so. May they become true. May we embody them with all that we are. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope this has been helpful. And I hope you'll keep listening. We have a couple more messages left in this series where we'll tackle some really important things. Thanks so much.